Welcome to Ventricles, a podcast of the science, religion, and culture program at Harvard Divinity School. My name is Shireen Hamza. This episode is part of a series about time, including timekeeping and time travel. In today's episode, I sit down with Eli Nelson, a professor of American Studies at Williams College, to speak about travel across frontiers, or rather, horizons, whether through the oceans or through space. We discussed the revitalization of indigenous Polynesian sailing techniques through the Hokulea, called by some the Spaceship of the Ancestors. But first, let's return to Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. They actually don't have a lot of friction uh, causing things. Uh, so languages are automatically translated across. Earlier in that same uh, film, uh, Uhura is sending out a message in multiple languages uh, without a problem sort of of that translation. That's Gilly Vidan, a PhD student who spoke to us about money earlier this season. Actually, the Star Trek world is so utopian, the Federation has sort of negotiated peace in such a successful way that you don't have these means of uh, cultural specificity or political specificity that are creating friction in our world. Anybody who tried to uh, travel abroad realizes how much we don't live in a globalized economy and how much the specificity of the type of currency we use um, is a source of friction for these kind of transactions. Money is like disability and race. It is friction and therefore it doesn't exist in the utopia. And, and, and therefore a thing of the past. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Thinking about race as a thing of friction, a thing of the past, has been part of many imagined futures. We imagine the future differently based on what is happening in the present in the local, and in the familiar. Not everyone finds this idea of a homogenous, cultureless future, an intergalactic view from nowhere, appealing. For some people who imagine the future, the specificity and particularity of tradition is very important, not something they wish would disappear. Traditional knowledges are something that many want to carry forward into a dynamic future. This is the story of the Hokulea, and here's Eli Nelson. In 1992, the Polynesian Voyaging Society and the University of Hawaii set up a conversation to take place between the crew of the Hokulea, which is a traditional double-hulled indigenous canoe, and university students with the crew of the Columbia then in orbit. Um, This conversation uh, ended with a very interesting question from a university student, um, and they asked, what is the difference between the Columbia's voyages and meaning in society and the Hokulea? The pilot of the Columbia, Lacey Viak, responded, Hokulea is of the past, um, the Columbia is of the future. Wait, so this whole conversation, the Columbia crew was on their ship, the Hokulea crew was on their ship, but one of them was supposed to be in the future and one of them was supposed to be in the past? Exactly. It was literally present. They were on the on board, and somehow this vessel was of the past. Uh, I mean, when was the first canoe of its kind? It wasn't made for 600 years, but were they made before that? How old is this kind of canoe? What was it used for? This canoe is uh, ancient, and it's been, it was used by um, indigenous Polynesians for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years to travel over, sometimes over 10,000 miles across open ocean in the South Pacific. Uh, yes, and it was at a time 
when uh, voyaging that distance was considered inconceivable for most other voyaging technology. It wasn't until, say, around the 1300s that uh, Europeans first started visiting these same islands. Okay, wait. So you're saying that this whole idea of Vasco da Gama being the first person to go, you know, that far to go from Europe around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, you know, open sea vessels and all those giant ships with the huge sails and all, those aren't the first ones to do that, to travel that far across the world? They may have been the first uh, from Europe, but uh, indigenous Polynesians traveled from East Asia uh, much, much, much earlier. And we're talking centuries and centuries before this. Wow. On double-hulled canoes. and How and- big were these? Like... Um, what did it look like? These canoes, they could hold a crew. They varied considerably, um, but most um, could hold a crew of, say, 16 or so. Sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes double that, even up to 30. But they really confounded uh, European explorers and then later anthropologists over the centuries um, because they could not understand how a vessel like this, which was clearly made for long distance and that had very limited drag, um, could go such long distances, especially across the South Pacific, which had large areas of doldrums and, and trade winds, which would have meant they needed some way of pushing past, or so they thought. Hmm. Um, and so anthropologists for centuries assumed that uh, Polynesian seafaring must have been accidental. They got into a boat, in a canoe at, rather, um, and sort of accidentally drifted off to the next island. Huh. That's awful lucky to happen by chance. Yes. <laughs> 10,000 miles on accident. On accident. Um, especially because, as I said, you know, this is holding maybe 30 people, sometimes maybe more, but it's not like you have a lot of room for food and provisions to go that great distance. Um, especially and if it's accidental, you're just sort of waiting for the trade winds to pick up and who knows how long you'll be at ocean. This is months and months. Fascinating. So this is an ancient vessel. It's literally 2,000 years old or more. Mm-hmm. And um, the one that you mentioned that people were sitting on, Hokulea. Mm-hmm. Okulea. Uh, Okulea. Um, what's the history behind that? So Hokulea was built uh, during an era of revitalization for indigenous seafaring and canoe building globally. Um, Hokulea was built... Well, there's there are two origin stories for the Hokulea. Um, one concerns an anthropologist who was pushing against this accidental drift hypothesis that I was just talking about, um, who, during the course of his uh, graduate work, found again and again that no one would listen to his theoretical arguments about why this was impossible. And so upon graduating from uh, uh, Harvard, uh, he decided he was going to build one of these canoes um, and try traveling and see how it actually worked. Um, that's one story. And, and of course, this is a, a story of triumph because he proved that there was no way that this could be accidental drift and that, in fact, the, the canoe could do several interesting things. Um, the other story uh, is concerns the first um, captain, well, the first and second captain um, and uh, Ben Finney's largely silent business part- partner, uh, Herb Kane. So and Ben Finney was the anthropologist that you were talking about? Yes. Okay. Yes. He worked at University of Hawaii for most of his career after he graduated from Harvard. The others concerned uh, cultural re- revitalization and sovereignty movements. Herb Kane was from um, sort of a, a diasporic uh, Midwestern U.S. Uh, Hawaiian community and came back to Hawaii uh, and started teaching not quite sure where he learned these, I assume his family, um, where he started teaching uh, traditional uh, modes of navigation and started working with Finney to build this canoe, which had not been built in such a long time. Okay, so it was teamwork between Ben Finney, an anthropologist, and Herb Kane, a Hawaiian 
person who had learned navigation from his family. Yes. In uh, the Midwest. In the Midwest. Yeah, Irvin <laughs> in, is a very interesting character. Um, but this was also, I mean, this was a community effort. So the, the first, one of the first captains of the Hokulea, uh, Naomi Thompson, um, described learning uh, how to build the canoe and learning how to uh, be the captain of the canoe as a, a really transformative experience. He says that when he was growing up in Hawaii in the 1960s, that he felt that he was sort of in a, a place of like cultural conflict and that he couldn't really uh, connect or find grounding. And when he learned how to navigate by the stars, when he learned how his ancestors had traveled across the South Pacific, um, he started to feel a sense of belonging and also a sense of looking forward. Uh, in fact, the a member of the first crew of the Hokulea uh, called it the, um, the spaceship of the ancestors. Wow. So for him, it's not just about being able to travel, you know, thousands or even 10,000 miles on this vessel it's about being able to do it in the way that people have been doing it for thousands of years his ancestors included yes the the vantage from a canoe is very unique um, especially when you have to travel those very long distances um, one of the the biggest challenges in uh, the with some of the first um, voyages of the Hokulea was figuring out how to get past the doldrums and Ben Finney was on this voyage and Nanny Thompson said he really didn't know how he was going to do this um, and as soon as he got there uh, he realized what he had to do and that was wait um, and he waited a very long time until you know every once in a while the trade winds pick up every once in a while something sort of shifts and you can make a little bit of headway and then you wait again um and so it was actually this sort of uh, purposeful and patient intent that anthropologists couldn't really understand surely if you mm. hadn't built something to work against the uh, wind then clearly you weren't actually trying to move interesting so actually in that case the the small size relatively small size of the vessel and the willingness to as you say work with the wind rather than be able to defeat its lack. Exactly. <laughs> um, that was what allowed them to move through these vast spaces of time despite um, the irregularity yes, of the wind. Exactly. So this vessel is still sailing. Yes, it is. It's still sailing in sort of the same mechanism where it's like sort of partly a lab for anthropologists and partly this sort of re revitalization program. Um, and it's traveled Oh God, it's traveled tens of thousands of miles at this point. It, it just keeps going. Um, and it's been the site of tests on sort of the how indigenous people can navigate without the use of stars, for example, on cloudy evenings, things like that. I think they've gone around the world. They've gone around the world. Their yeah. first was like from Hawaii to Tahiti, so it was like, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was very far, and the more than half the island came out to greet them when they got there. Whoa, yeah. so more than half of Tahiti came out to see this um, this vessel sail in for the first time in 600 years. For the first time in 600 years, exactly. Amazing. So why, why did these boats disappear? These boats disappeared as a purposeful mechanism of colonialism to... Uh, suppress indigenous Hawaiians and Tahitians largely, but South Pacific people uh, generally. Uh, the first voyage, some of the first voyages to particularly uh, sort of Hawaii and Tahiti. Um, by Europeans. By Europeans. Uh, largely, say, the Cook Expedition, for example, um, recognized how 
uh, unique these vessels were. And uh, there are, are multiple records and drawings of them recognizing that they are potentially a threat, that they enable Hawaiians to travel in a way that they hadn't quite figured out. Um, and so they, they burned them. Um, and then sort of after successive generations of purposeful genocide and uh, cultural repression, uh, they just hadn't been built in a, a very long time. I see. So the knowledge and the practice of building ships was also not totally lost, but sort of piecemeal because of this. It, I, I wouldn't say it was. It's in some ways piecemeal than that. There, there, there wasn't a generation of people whose parents had literal experience so a lot of it had to be rebuilt but while the actual ships hadn't been built for for a very long time the discussion and sort of um examination of them had never died anthropologists have been obsessed with this for generations so much so that you can see clear um stages in their obsession so it starts off with 19th century oral histories and then they move on to studying um, pottery and sort of how art moves across the south pacific and trying to find a way of how migration works then and then most recently it's been um, computer uh, computer simulations and genetic tracing and uh, chemical tracing as well so i want to go back to uh, a comment you made about these coexisting technologies and the people that are attached to them um, and despite that fact, them being designated by certain narratives of futurity um, to a point in time that is not either the present or the future, um, there's a really uh, an, another funny part of uh, Star Trek for the Voyage Home uh, where Chekhov is being sent to look for nuclear vessels, which has its own uh, sort of lost political significance in 1986 in San Francisco, sending somebody with Chekhov's accent to look for nuclear vessels. But there's a moment where he's communicating back, I think, to Kirk, and he's looking at uh, this ship, and he's um, radioing in and saying, good news, it's the Enterprise. And it's this moment of late 20th century existing technology being assigned the same level of advancement, or at least aesthetic or heuristics, of what the future of uh, spaceships would be like, and we rarely see canoes. So yes, exactly. Uh, canoes aren't in Star Trek. There are some indigenous people in Star Trek, uh, which is a, a completely different discussion, but canoes are used uh, quite frequently in even mainstream science fiction. Um, the best example I can think of is a book by Tony Daniels, Warpath, um, that posits a, a future in which... Um, sort of 13th century Mississippian um, Indians have uh, traveled to space on canoes using, I believe what he describes, a, quote, weird mind trick involving a, quote, spirit animal um, that results in them being able to travel across time and space literally in a canoe. And he opens this book uh, by describing a sort of this literal disgust that you would feel at seeing canoes hovering over what he describes as something that could be a 19th century U.S. frontier town, um, because these are these futuristic technologies that are existing in what should be the frontier of space. Um, and using indigenous people in space as a uh, very literal <laughs> metaphor for exploration and pushing past the frontier is very common. So the disgust is supposed to sort of symbolize this out-of-placeness for the indigenous technology in a futuristic setting. Exactly. They're not supposed to be there. It's completely natural to come come upon a 19th century frontier town in space, but seeing futuristic indigenous technology is literally disgusting. Um, and additionally, because in this narrative wherein indigenous people have been able to travel to space, 
oddly settlers are both technologically inferior because they came to the space game you know thousands of years late but also obviously superior because they can't became late due to their sort of privileged position which allowed them to uh travel in a much uh, faster much more um sort of masterful way as opposed to kind of just using a mind trick and a spirit animal and finding your way and the idea of a very linear gradual uh progression into this future versus the ability to you know sort of leap in time and reconnect with a, a golden age of sorts or some something like that yes exactly it, it, it disrupts this idea where the enterprise can be in the late 20th century um, and in the future because the, there is an understanding of progress that is not present there or is troubled by the, the presence of space canoes and I think the important thing in, in saying that it is the enterprise is that the spirit of the enterprise is what's being projected forward. The technology is different. The, sp- the spaceship, the enterprise looks very different from the ship, the enterprise. But they are both the enterprise and that they are both literally Western scientific enterprise sort of pushing the boundaries sort of um, vessels. Um, but you're right. You do not see canoes and you do not see that uh, sort of relationship of travel projected forward either. Despite the fact that... Um these canoes specifically had actually crossed frontiers. Yes, (laughs) or at the very least horizons, um, which is how uh, Naomi Thompson talks about it. In Mm. fact, um, sort of to answer this question of how do you navigate when you can't see the stars, um, Thompson found that when he was captaining the Hokulea, he would never sleep for more than two hours at a time because the way that he was able to keep them on track was to always look forward toward the horizon and slightly to the right, I believe, and sort of follow this point relationally. So every time you came up to the point, you would sort of project it forward again. And he could never sleep too long because that would remove him a little too far from his surroundings. And so they're they're moving past horizons. It is very uh, pointedly a horizon that they're, they're going towards, something that's constantly receding, something that they're never going to really master as opposed to a frontier mm. which is what the enterprise is, is constantly seeking i see the final frontier the final frontier <laughs> right so it's not just the physical difference between a horizon and a frontier but it's kind of the meaning of uh, of a horizon as a place that you're not trying to master or change but a place that you're looking forward to absolutely and people like ben finney um who Uh, toward the end of his career, uh, identified himself as uh, someone working in the cosmic humanities, uh, argued that uh, the Hokulea and uh, Polynesian seafaring more broadly should be used as a model for um, space exploration. But his argument was that Polynesians were a good model culturally because they had developed a an exploration society that had very specific economic and cultural patterns that made voyaging easy. So they had um, sort of an economic system that would uh, urge them forward and wouldn't make them want to stay, which he insists would be necessary going forward um, if we are going to actually go out and, as he would say, colonize space. I think I agree that using the Hokulea is a good way to think about space exploration, but much more actually this, like the physical experience of being in canoe and this horizon thinking and the actual epistemic meaning uh, and relationship between travel and technology. But space canoes are very popular in a lot of sort of native futurism and indigenous science fiction. Um, uh, Elizabeth Lapense, who's a Métis artist um, and also a video game designer, uh, among other things, and a professor at University of Michigan, uh, has several uh, p- series of paintings with canoes in space, one literally called Space Canoe. <laughs> there you go. And yeah. the listeners can find uh, that on our website. 
Listeners, thank you for joining us again for this episode of Ventricles about sailing across horizons and into indigenous futures. If you're interested in learning more about any of the topics we discussed today, please check out the bibliography for this episode online at the Science, Religion, and Culture Program website, src.hds.harvard.edu. Tune in to the rest of our series about time, including episodes on the pulse, the future of Iraq, and more. A special thank you for this music to the Overseas Ensemble, a collaboration between composer Pait Gonka and Sarigama, a group of Sri Lankan musicians who came together while working in Beirut 